0: To another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host Brad Soboleski, and today we are going to be focusing on the care of neurodivergent children who have mental health emergencies in the emergency department. And sometimes my podcast episodes are just me talking. Other times they are a platform for colleagues of mine to share what they have learned. And this episode is the latter, so it features the voices of Eileen Claudius who is from Harbor UCLA Medical Center, the Department of Emergency Medicine. She's the Director of Quality and Process Improvement, as well as Alice Kuo, Professor and Chief of Medicine Pediatrics and Preventative Medicine at UCLA. And this timely podcast episode is a co-production of the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, whose mission is to minimize morbidity, and mortality of acutely ill and injured children across the Emergency Medical Services for Children continuum. So without further ado, I bring you Alice and Eileen.
1: I'm joined by Alice Quo, professor and chief of MedPeds at UCLA, to talk about neurodivergent children having mental health emergencies in the emergency department. Alice, thank you so much for taking us through this. And I just kind of want to start with a basic question. We've all kind of heard this term neurodivergent, but can you talk a little bit about what that actually means The term
2: neurodivergent has emerged over the last few years to describe individuals who may consider themselves to have their brains wired a little bit differently from the rest of the population. Autistic comes to mind when we think about individuals who fit this category, but neurodivergent individuals also include people with ADHD, people with learning disabilities, or just people who see the world a different way. One of my autistic patients explained it to me really well, I think. He was 11 years old, and he said that being autistic was like being an Android phone in an iPhone world. And when I use that analogy, it really does resonate with a lot of people to recognize that we have to accept all different types of individuals and the way their brains are wired.
1: When you were discussing mental health emergencies in neurodivergent individuals, you seem to hone in on anxiety as being a really central feature. Can you discuss that for a minute?
2: Sure. Speaking about autism more specifically, we know that around 80% of individuals who are autistic will also have anxiety. And I think to be honest, it's warranted because if you are an Android in an iPhone world, you're constantly trying to look for the compatibility. We understand that autistic individuals sometimes miss social cues, sometimes can't read nuances in social situations. And as autistic individuals get older, they realize that they may have that challenge. And then social situations can be anxiety provoking. So right now, it's August. Lots of kids are going back to school. Some kids are going to new schools. Some kids are going to new grades. There is a lot of anxiety because I think it is challenging for autistic and non-autistic children to be faced with unfamiliar situations. So for most patients, The emergency room is a very unfamiliar and probably overwhelming environment and that many patients are anxious when they come.
1: Whenever I lecture on this, I tell people that the principles we use for autistic patients in the emergency department are really things we should probably be considering for all patients in the emergency department, because who loves loud buzzers and bright lights and 6,000 people walking into your room? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're neurotypical or neurodivergent, it's a tough place to be. Now, a lot of our patients are going to be children and they're going to come in with a caregiver. And I know that we spoke a little bit about how the caregiver can modulate the child's anxiety with their own anxiety.
2: Can you discuss that? In many cases, children with anxiety often have parents with anxiety as well. And the situations in which we see patients with significant agitation from that anxiety in the emergency department that requires a little more intervention often is accompanied by a parent who is so anxious themselves that they're unable to modulate their child's response. Any intervention that is trying to decrease or deescalate an agitated child should take into consideration where the parent is in that mix. So if the parent is effective in trying to decrease the anxiety of the child, then enlisting the support of the parent and discussing, hey, what works? You know, is there a video that they like that they could watch? Or would it help if we dim the lights? The parent can often give you those tips and you can work together as a team to de-escalate that child's agitated behavior. But in some cases, the parent is so anxious or agitated themselves that they're unable to give those cues or those clues, and then the staff, the nurses, the physicians are sort of left to try to figure out strategies to help that child's behavior.
1: So when we have a child come in with agitation, and we're looking at the beginning steps of controlling agitation, verbal de-escalation, environmental modification, that sort of thing, should we be approaching a neurodivergent child differently than we would a child termed neurotypical?
2: That's a really good question, because any agitated child is an agitated child, no matter how their brain is wired. And I think that the anxiety and the agitation sort of comes from this fight or flight response that individuals cannot help. And so the approach to any child with agitation should be the same regardless of whether they are neurodivergent or not. Some strategies that help for de-escalating agitation, especially in an environment like the emergency department, which is bright, loud beats, lots of noise, lots of people, would be, first of all, when approaching the child and the parent to use softened tones, not too harsh, not too authoritative. Dimming the lights is another easy strategy to use because those harsh fluorescent lights in the emergency department can often be very stimulating. Sometimes, if possible, parents who are aware of their child's sound sensitivity will bring noise-canceling headphones. I've mentioned to some people that perhaps the ER could stalk some because that can help also try to drown out the noise and protect the child from harsh sound, from the buzzing, from the beeping, that can not just be very noisy, but anxiety-provoking because, you know, all of a sudden there's a beep and it's like, what does that mean? Is my heart okay? And so those strategies are very
1: easy ones to employ in any emergency room situation. Now you're talking about preventative strategies. The child does start to escalate. I know we always try to use distraction and there's all of this stuff about VR and iPads and robots and bubbles, but we're already talking about a group of patients patients who are overstimulated to some degree. Do we want to go in there and provide more stimulation or do we actually want to pull it back and provide less stimulation?
2: I think it depends on the child and this is where A parent who is able to be a teammate could be helpful. Because as much as we think of an iPad as being stimulating, especially those of us who don't necessarily turn to an iPad naturally to pass the time, in some cases, especially for neurodivergent children, being able to focus on a familiar game or a video is actually more soothing. There could be a paradoxical response, but I think it really depends on each individual child. And that's where somebody who knows the child and knows what makes them comfortable could be very helpful
1: let's say you have a mildly agitated child with autism who is willing to take a nasal or an oral medication and just wants a little something to calm down or the parents want it or you want it what would be your first go-to in that situation
2: An oral benzodiazepine is often a good way to go. If the child is able to take an oral medication, very, very low dose, like 0.5 milligrams of lorazepam, depending again on the age and the size of the child. If we're at that point, there's also intranasal midazolam, which we do use in our urgent care clinics at UCLA as well. If the non-medication strategies have not worked, are something that can be used in our toolbox to try to help that child break through their anxiety.
1: And do you worry more about a paradoxical reaction from a benzodiazepine? We obviously have seen that. If there has been experience, the
2: parent can inform us of that. I will say that in my own experience, it seems to happen more with, for example, the antihistamines that are used for their sedating properties, and then they become a little more amped up as a result. And so I think it is a little bit of trial and error, and that's why you go low dose and you kind of see if it helps at all or if it has that
1: paradoxical response. Great tip, because I feel like sometimes we think of diphenhydramine as being a little bit safer than a benzo, but it sounds like if you get a paradoxical reaction, maybe not exactly the best choice. For kids that have severe agitation, EIIC and TREK co-developed a medication table to give some guidance to clinicians, and it's actually really helpful. Are there any things that you would highlight or modify for children who are neurodivergent?
2: The FDA has approved two medications for aggressive behavior in autistic children, and those would be risperidone and aripiprazole. In my experience, it's not a single dose that would help with that level of aggression when there is, you know, biting, kicking, screaming, that level of agitation. I understand that while something like chlorpromazine could be effective, from the evidence standpoint, it's not as well supported. But in practice, especially in desperate situations, a low dose of chlorpromazine can be used to try to control some agitated behavior.
1: So if I'm in an emergency department and I literally could get any medication that I want, what would your number one choice be for a child with severe agitation and autism?
2: I think the issue of medication can be a tough one, but there are definitely situations in an emergency department where that might be warranted. Again, I would hope that any non-medication strategy would be tried before getting to that point. So for example, something as simple as hunger could be the reason that a six-year-old was acting out and having a meltdown and being agitated. So feeding a child could also reduce some of those behaviors. But let's say you do have to resort to medication, then I would say it's sort of, to me, dependent on the age of the child and the severity of the behaviors. For younger children, if the behaviors are mild enough, you know, where they might be acting out but not necessarily endangering themselves or endangering others, maybe something as mild as an oral benzodiazepine could be a choice to just calm them down. But if you have a younger child, six, seven, eight years old, who is trying to elope or, you know, kicking, biting, screaming, and you needed to use something more significant, then perhaps I am. benzodiazepine or even an oral antipsychotic could be used. Although with the antipsychotics, I would just be concerned that, you know, one of the side effects is stimulating appetite with even just one dose <laughs> that I've seen in some patients. So if they're going to have difficulty getting fed in the emergency department, that doesn't exactly help. With older children, adolescents, for example, again, the severity of the behavior I think might dictate your medication choice. So if you can get away with an oral or IM benzodiazepine just for some anxiolysis just to calm them down, relax them a little bit, that could be helpful. Sometimes if they are verbal enough, they will actually say that they're feeling very agitated and anxious, and this is causing their behavior. Then they may actually request something that will help them calm down. In that case, I would tend towards a benzodiazepine as opposed to an antipsychotic. But if you do do have an older child or an adolescent who is bigger and can possibly do significant harm to themselves or to staff, then doing, you know, an oral or even IM antipsychotic like haloperidol would probably be appropriate.
1: So start with a sandwich. If that doesn't work, try an oral benzo possibly an oral antipsychotic, have another sandwich ready if you do the latter, and in a child who is a little bit bigger and acting up substantially to the point that you're worried about the safety of the child or the staff, go ahead and give an intramuscular, benzo, antipsychotic, a combination as you would for a typical adult patient who's having the same risk of endangering themselves or those around them. Occasionally, we end up needing to use physical restraints as well, Is there anything that we should know in terms of interfacing with a child or the family if we initiate physical restraint?
2: I think the use of physical restraints is very challenging, although I do recognize that there's some scenarios where for the child's own safety, it is the best choice. I would like to think, however, that physical restraints would not be used alone, but in conjunction with other techniques that would try to help the child manage their anxiety and their behaviors. And often that would be either a benzodiazepine or maybe an antipsychotic at that point.
1: I feel like there's so many things that you learn in the course of working with children who have autism. Any other tips that we could use in our time in the emergency department?
2: In my experience as a primary care provider for autistic children and children with other neurodevelopmental conditions, is that they're children as well, and people should not be either put off by their autism diagnosis or afraid that they don't know how to connect with these children. I think there's a lot of misperception out there that these children are not emotional, that they don't have interest, that they don't want to communicate, that they don't want to form relationships, and that has not been my experience as with any child. If somebody goes in trying to create rapport, having empathy, being kind, you can get really, really far in trying to manage somebody's anxiety with those very humanistic approaches.
1: Thank you so much. I think this has been really helpful and we do often tend to put these children into a totally different category and talk ourselves into the fact that we are going to have difficulty managing their agitation and I think these are great takeaway pearls to help remind us that we're great at doing this and just because a child is neurodiverse doesn't mean that we're not going to still be great at managing their agitation and showing them compassion.
0: Thank you again to Eileen Claudius and Alice Quo for delivering such timely information on a patient population that we are all increasingly encountering in the emergency department. The EMSC Innovation and Improvement Center has a full suite of educational offerings on its Pediatric Education and Advocacy, or PEAK, kits for agitation. I'll include the link in the show notes, as well as the contact information for our two speakers so that you can reach out to them if you have more questions or comments. To learn more about the EMSC Innovation and Improvement Center in general, visit their website at emscimprovement.center. You can email at km at emscimprovement.center or follow them on Twitter at emscimprovement. And as for me, well, I think you know where to find me. My website's pemblog.com. You can check out more educational content there. Follow me on Twitter at PemTweets. And any feedback you have about this episode, especially those when I bring in special guests, shoot me an email, direct message, comment on the blog, or a review on your favorite podcast site. With PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. This has been Brad Sobolewski. See you next time.